old adage tells us to forgive and forget. And I've wondered sometimes, is that, is that, does that actually line up with what Scripture teaches about forgiveness? According to recent research by the Barna Group, pastors are half as likely as their congregations to say that real forgiveness requires forgetting the offense. Um, but they're also more likely than those in the views to say that it's about restoring a relationship, but not necessarily forgetting. Those two things are not the same. Either way, forgiveness can be difficult to extend. It can be difficult really to understand. I appreciate what Carl had to say about that. We're going to drill into forgiveness today. Uh, about a quarter of practicing Christians um, know someone that they can't or don't want to forgive, even though they themselves have been forgiven by Jesus. Let me show you the research. Uh, here are the percentage of practicing Christians who identify with each experience. Here's the first one. Um, they've received unconditional forgiveness from somebody. 55% say that they've received unconditional forgiveness. Okay? 38% would say they have not received unconditional forgiveness. 27% would say that they know someone that they don't want to forgive, all right? 23% would say they know someone that they can't forgive, right? So there's a 4% difference there between I, I will, I don't want to, but I will, right? That's what that says. And 15% say that I have not offered unconditional forgiveness to anyone. Now, why would we wrestle through some of this stuff? Well, I'll simply put, this unforgiveness, this unwillingness to forgive, for those of us who have been forgiven of our sins by Jesus Christ, this is not the way. We're talking about that. We've been graciously provided with forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus. He and he alone is the only way that we can have our sins washed away, that we can be restored to a right relationship with our creator. When Jesus claims to be the way and the truth and the life in John 14, 6, and that those who follow him came to be known as followers of the way, part of this way means forgiveness. He is the way that we find forgiveness and he is the way that we extend it to others. So when it comes to something important like forgiveness and having our relationship with God restored, we follow Jesus' way or no way. There's no alternative. And this is what Peter and John, I think, were saying in, in the, to the Jewish leaders in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, when they said, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, in the context, of course, we realize that the word salvation there is inclusive of a broad range of benefits. Yes, it's the renewal of our minds and the restoration of our souls and the redemption of our bodies, which only comes through Jesus. He is the way, and because he lives like that, we should too. So how do we do that? We're going to press into that today. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. That's where we're going to be today in Hebrews chapter 10. Thanks, everybody, for being here today. Appreciate those uh, in the room. Thankful, thankful for those watching online. Thanks for logging in. Uh, whether you're here in the room online, take a second and fill out your connection card. Um, if you haven't done that yet, while you're writing, I would ask you to add a couple things to your prayer list. Um, first of all, sad news, uh, our brother Rob Dean passed away unexpectedly, just died in his sleep 
this week. So if you hadn't, we don't have any arrangements yet. So just keep Rob Dean's family in your prayers. He was really involved with, with uh, some of our groups here and especially with the Chapel Rock Community Development. Um, so again, I've told you everything I know, uh, but, but keep Rob's uh, family in your prayers uh, that way. Um, and also a praise. Uh, last week, you know, we mentioned that uh, Brother Dave Pound was in on a mission trip, a medical mission trip in Honduras, had all his uh, medicines confiscated. Uh, he's home today. He's homesick. Hey, Dave, he's watching online. Uh, came home uh, not feeling well. But all those medicines were given back to the mission. So uh, thank you for your prayers. Um, Dave specifically wanted me to thank you for that, and, and, and thank you. The surgical implements that he took were, were, were remained confiscated, but the medicines were given back, and so that, that's really the main thing there, uh, and so we're grateful for that. Um, and, and while we're thinking about prayer, you've got a few opportunities coming up real soon. Uh, Monday night, tomorrow night, is the final prayer meeting for the uh, TCM Prayer Fast Global Network, discipleship.org, renew.org conference that's happening this week. Uh, Shadanka Johnson is gonna be here to lead us in prayer uh, tomorrow night in Fellowship Hall at 7 p.m. Uh, powerful opportunity before that conference happens this week. Uh, really, really exciting thing. And then on May 4th is the National Day of Prayer. Kyle mentioned that earlier. Uh, there's information in your bulletin there. And then two weeks from today on May 7th is another night of prayer and discernment uh, for Chapel Rock Community Development as we continue to think about what next steps are for that important ministry. So several opportunities over the next couple weeks uh, to, to really deepen your prayer walk with Jesus. Let's take a moment and pray right now. God, we praise you uh, that you re restored uh, the medicines to that mission in Honduras. We thank you for that, God. Uh, grateful that uh, Brother Dave is home. Uh, pray for a speedy recovery for him and that, uh, Lord, we would go even further and ask that those surgical implements are also given back. Um, so that this, uh, this mission can, can continue to um, preach the good news of Jesus uh, and, and also heal, uh, heal bodies uh, with that, and, and to that, that is love in action. Uh, we want to lift up Rob Dean's family, Lord, right now as they're grieving. Uh, your word says to grieve with those who grieve, and so we just, our hearts go out to them, Lord, and, and we want to lift them up as, as they uh, have to deal with this unexpected loss. We just ask your blessing and comfort on them. God, open up our hearts and minds to what you would say to us today in your word. We love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A couple weeks ago, we started a new sermon series uh, called This is the Way, and we're borrowing the uh, catchphrase from the show uh, The Mandalorian on the Disney Plus network set in the Star Wars universe. If you haven't seen it, he's basically like a bounty hunter. Uh, it's, it's, it's an old west in space, right? And the Mandalorians, they, they wear armor and they're fighters and they're warriors as part of a warrior culture. And they live their lives according to something called the creed. And on the show, whenever somebody makes a reference uh, to uh, something pertaining to the creed or living according to the creed, a character will often say, this is the way. And what we've been trying to do in this series is to use this cultural touch point uh, to draw out of Scripture a foundational truth that I think the church would do well in this 21st century environment we're in to emphasize a little bit more than we have been over the years. We're talking about the exclusive claim of Jesus. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me in John 14, 6. And that was so foundational for the early church, the primitive church, that they became known as followers of the way. I mean, it just, it, it became part of their identity. In fact, they were called followers of the way before they were even called Christians. We looked at one passage that talked about that last week. We'll look at another one next Sunday. 
Today, I referenced Acts chapter 4 earlier. When the apostles Peter and John in Acts 4 uh, were on trial for healing a lame man at the temple, man, they didn't back down at all, right? They're literally facing the entire power structure of their culture. They didn't back down. They, they insisted that Jesus, who was by then resurrected from the dead and ascended to the Father, that this Jesus had empowered them to heal this lame man. And like we said a couple weeks ago, Jesus' resurrection proves that he is the only way to God. And so it follows that if Jesus is the only way to God, he's also the only way to forgiveness, because only God can do that. On an ultimate sense, at an ultimate level. I mean, this is, this is his universe. You may not like the way that God does things. You may think you have a different way, but you don't have a different universe. You live in his, so we have to go by his rules. And this is, this is the way that God has said to find forgiveness. And because that's true, that places some uh, requirements on how we live. Here's the big idea this morning. Once we understand that only the way of Jesus provides forgiveness and reconciliation with God. We must learn to practice habits that support us in this way. Once you get that Jesus is the only way to have forgiveness, there are certain habits, certain practices that you have to have in your life that support you in that understanding. And when you understand that, you'll see that there are three essential habits or practices that define this way, at least relative to forgiveness. I want you to look for him as we read from Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Look at this with me. Therefore, brothers and sisters, so all, everything up to that point had been mostly doctrinal stuff, right? So here the author of Hebrews kind of turns the corner, therefore, so he's beginning to apply it to our lives. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living, there's the word, way, Open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly, that's one of my favorite Bible words, to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we might spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the, note the capitalization, day approaching. So there are, in this passage, I think we see three essential practices in following Jesus' way of forgiveness. In the passage, there are three let us phrases. Did you notice that? Let us do this, let us do this, let us do this. And I think that they describe these three essential practices of those who are trusting Jesus as the only way to be saved. Here's the first one. The first practice is drawing near to Jesus. Drawing near to Jesus. The way that the Apostle John will describe this is abiding in Christ. The, the way the author of Hebrews describes it is drawing near to Jesus. If Jesus is the only way to be forgiven, to have your sins washed away, to be reconciled to God, to receive all the blessings associated with those things, it stands to reason that drawing near to Jesus is something you should do and do regularly. And the author of Hebrews picks up on that. Now, l l real quick aside here, we don't know exactly who it was that wrote Hebrews. 
We really don't know. Very early on in church history, it was attributed to the Apostle Paul, but that was also during the time that the, the canon of the New Testament was still coming together. They were deciding, okay, this book is scripture, this book is, this is inspired, this is not, and so they wanted to make sure Hebrews got in there, because it's great stuff, you know, uh, and it is, it is inspired. But they were like, so probably Paul wrote it, but it's not signed, unlike everything else he wrote. Paul signed everything he wrote. He, nobody signed this. So we really don't know. Modern scholarship has probably put it as Apollos. Now, whoever, because whoever wrote this was in Paul's orbit, right? Because in chapter 13, it talks about Timothy. So they, they knew Timothy. Whoever wrote Hebrews knew Timothy, so probably knew Paul. And the most likely candidate is Apollos, um, probably also influenced by Priscilla and Aquila. So it's possible that, that Priscilla and Aquila, wife and husband respectively, might have had some input into writing the book of Hebrews as well, right? Um, but that's, that's probably who it is. Anyway, we don't know who it was, uh, probably somebody in Paul's orbit, but certainly is inspired, certainly shows a deep knowledge of, of Scripture in the Old Testament. And I think you see this in verse 22 when they talk about drawing near to God. We might not know for sure who wrote the book, but the author tells us that when we trust Jesus and only Jesus for salvation, we can have confidence to enter into God's presence. Now, you may wonder why I've continued to insist that Jesus is the only way. Because of this statement in verse 20, that Jesus opened a new and living way is how the book phrase, the word puts it. The word way there is the same one we looked at in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. It's the same one that is, is used in Acts 9, followers of the way. That Jesus' body given for you on the cross is a new and living way to enter into the, the presence of God Almighty. Hebrews, though, takes this even further. The way that Jesus opened is through the sacrifice of his body. In other words, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for your sin, in your place, is the doorway. When Jesus says in, in John 10, I am the gate for the sheep, you gotta go through him. His body is the way. Sacrifice for you, that's why in our communion time we celebrate his body and his blood. It's a recognition that it is only through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and those who have appropriated that sacrifice for themselves that they can have salvation. They can find forgiveness. You see, the image of the tabernacle and the temple is all over this passage, and I wish we had time today to unpack all of that. We'd be here till like tomorrow. <laughs> it's, it, Hebrews is just loaded with that, but let me do two because there are two that really matter. First of all, let's talk about the curtain. Okay, the curtain is a reference to the veil in the tabernacle and then later the temple that separated the Holy of Holies, that's the most internal spot, right? That's where the Ark of the Covenant was, that's where the presence of God was over the mercy seat. That, that veil separated the from the Holy of Holies or most holy place from the holy place, which is where the altar of incense was and the lamp and the table of showbread. Now remember in the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament, the priests serve at the temple for two weeks out of the year. The rest of the time they go home, they work a normal job. But they got a two-week rotation, and they go in there and they offer incense um, on the altar of incense with the prayers of the people. They tend the lamp and make sure it continues to burn. They set out fresh bread every day on the table of showbread, right? But there's this curtain, there's this veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place, okay, or the holy of holies. 
And then he references the great priest. Now, this is a reference to the practice of the high priest of Israel who's allowed to enter the most holy place on the day of atonement and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the altar. All right, that's this, this great priest. The, the, or excuse me, not on the altar, on the Ark of the Covenant. They're only allowed to go in one day out of the year. And, and in later times, they begin to tie a rope around the leg of the high priest in case he was so overcome with the presence of God that he had a heart attack and died. And they could pull him out of there. Right? I mean, it was, it was, it, this is a big deal. And it was, it was scary. And the author of Hebrews, if, by the way, if you want the context on that, that's Exodus 36 through 40. Okay, Bible nerds, pay attention. Um, Exodus 36 through 40 describes all that stuff. The author here is telling us that because of our covenant of forgiveness and grace is with God through Jesus' sacrifice of his body for us on the cross, that means that we can only draw near to God through that, but that we must only draw near to God through that, through Jesus. I love how George Guthrie puts this in his commentary on Hebrews. He says, Jesus' compassionate disposition invites us to intimacy with God, and that makes intimacy possible. He goes on to write, the exhortation, let us draw near, translates a present tense form of the verb indicating that drawing near to God constitutes an ongoing aspect of the Christian's relationship with God. In other words, let us constantly approach what I'm saying is, if you've been given forgiveness from Jesus, if you have a new covenant with God through Christ, you need to continually be drawing near to God through Jesus. It is a continual practice. For those of us who have been forgiven, we must continually be drawing near to Christ every day through prayer and the word and, and serving. And there's all these different things. I, let, let me illustrate this. If you have ever done something wrong or dumb or both to your spouse and they have forgiven you, they, they truly legitimately forgave you, they just, they said, you know what, I'm not going to hold that against you, I'm going to let it go, I'm going to forgive and forget, whatever label you want to put on it. But your, your spouse has forgiven you, or maybe a parent or child relationship, it could work that way too. I've had to say I'm sorry to my kids, I don't know how many times. And they forgive you. What happens to the, your relationship in that moment? Instantly, you feel closer, don't you? you and, and you desperately want to be closer to that person. When they have given you forgiveness, when they have let that, that offense go and they're not holding it against you anymore, it automatically makes you feel closer to them. You want to be closer to them. It creates this. If that's true in human relationships, how much more then should it be true of our relationship with God? We're, we're continually drawing near to Jesus. If you've been forgiven by Christ, the way that you follow him is continually drawing near to him through Jesus. And if you're close to him, that makes it a whole lot easier to hold, on to, to hold on to him. That's the second practice that we see in the text, holding fast to Jesus. This second practice of those that believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved is to hold fast to Jesus. You can see that in this second let us phrase in verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly. I told you I like that word. 
If Jesus is the only way to find forgiveness, we must hold on to him without entertaining any other options, right? As the Mandalorians say, this is the way. There's a proscribed path. Do not deviate from it. In the book of Hebrews, more than any other, it sounds the warning bell for those who might be tempted to give up on their faith. And if I could just be super transparent with you, I, you know, I've, done, I've done a fair bit of reading over the years, and, and the primary reason I, I cannot um, accept a Calvinist understanding of Scripture is because of this book. I just can't go... <laughs> I heard Ben Merrill put it, he preached for many years at Harvester Christian Church uh, in St. Louis, and uh, he was part of a panel one time at the North American Christian Convention, and they, they, was just, they, were, they were just, it was kind of put the preacher in the hot seat kind of thing, and as the senior kind of ranking member on the, on the panel, they, they gave him this question, you know, they, they said, what do you say to people who say that you can't apostatize, you can't reject Jesus? And this was his answer, he goes, well, here's, I just ask him one question. If it's truly impossible, why are there so many warnings against it in the New Testament? It's a good question. If falling away from the faith is really impossible, why are there so many warnings against it in Hebrews? And if you were to go on reading beyond verse 25 where we read today, it gets into some pretty heavy stuff. And here's the thing. I love the balance in this. That many who are new to the faith are attracted to language like drawing near to Jesus. A lot of the songs that we sing talk about drawing near to Jesus. And not just the new ones. There are choruses and hymns written 40, 50, 60, 70, 100 years ago that talk about drawing near to Jesus. People love that language. This, I love how balanced that is, right? Yes, you need to draw near. You also need to hold on to. Once you get close, you, you white-knuckle grip on Jesus, you don't let go. Because he's the only way to be forgiven. He's the only way to find forgiveness. Th- this talk about holding fast is for those who have come through the fires of testing and found that there's nothing better than Jesus. We sang about that earlier, right? There's another in the fire. He's there with you. There's nothing better. In fact, in verse 23, the writer intensifies this concept of holding on with the verb akline which the NIV translates as unswervingly. It's a very rich word. It means that which does not bend, that which is straight. It communicates the concept of stability or immutability, unchangeableness. It's once you've made that commitment, do not let go of Jesus. I saw someone do it yesterday. One of my friends from high school. This is a different story than I was planning on telling right here. One of my friends from high school basically embraced the worldview of panentheism. That, that God is in everything and everything is God. This is someone who was a Christian for a lot of years. And I hope for repentance. But they basically said, I'm trusting in myself for salvation. Now, I'll send a personal note later. I didn't want to comment on the thread. This was a Facebook post. But the thing I'm, I'm asking is, well, what happens when you let yourself down? Then what? 
What happens when you reach a point when you're insufficient? You might be saying, oh, Casey, you're just all up in the clouds, and it's just all this doctrinal stuff, and I don't care. This doesn't affect real life. I saw it happen yesterday with someone that I respected and I care about giving up on Jesus. Jesus is the only one in the universe that can wash away your sin. And because of that, you better white knuckle grip on him. You hang on to him for everything you've got, no matter what's going on in your life. Paul and Silas were in prison in Acts 16 with their legs splayed out as wide as they could go in the stocks and backs ripped open and bleeding from the scourging and leaning up against a dirty block wall singing to Jesus. Why? Because they're not giving up on him. So church, if you claim him as Lord and you acknowledge that he alone is the way, you've got to hold fast to him and you better share him with others. This is part of that too, whatever may happen. Because things can get really hard. And that's why we need the third practice listed in this text. You draw near to Jesus, you hold fast to Jesus, but we motivate each other. The third practice is motivating each other. Now, I chose the word motivate because I think it provides a clearer application than a literal translation of the word used in the text. Literally, the word translated spur, spur one another on toward love and good deeds. It should probably be translated provoke, okay? Can I teach you a new 50-cent word? I like learning new words. That might frustrate some of you. I don't know. But I want to teach you a new one. This is one of my favorite words that you probably... I don't know, maybe you've never heard this in a sermon ever. Um, It's the word paroxysm. P-A-R-O-X-Y-S-M. Paroxysm. It comes from this, the word in this text. The word translated spur is the Greek word paroxysmos, or paroxmos, which usually means irritation or exasperation. You're like, I get it. I feel irritated right now that you're talking about paroxysm. A paroxysm is a fit or an attack or a sudden increase or recurrence of symptoms, like a a violent emotion or or action. It's basically, it's a word for when somebody has a fit, okay? So like, you can be seized with a paroxysm of coughing, right? You've heard this happen, I know, like, and now we freak out after COVID, but like when someone gets this coughing fit and they can't stop and you're like, are you okay? And they're just horking their guts up, you know, like, ah, you know, you're worried about them, right? Or you could be seized by a paroxysm of laughter if you've ever gone to see a comedian and they just, they just found your funny bone and they just got to you. And you're like, I can't breathe. I'm laughing so hard. When Mike Goodwin was here, like I went home and my face hurt the next day because it you know, just laughs so hard. Or it's when someone gets so irritated. I don't know if you've ever seen this, you know, where they just, they've, they're doing their best to be like Jesus. And sometimes that's really hard, right? Like they're doing their best to be like Jesus and they've just had it up to here and they finally lose it. And they're just like, ah! It's a paroxysm. It comes from this word. Here's my point. You're like, oh, thank God. For those of us who believe that Jesus is the exclusive way to God and the only way to find forgiveness, we should 
continually be provoking each other, not to anger or exasperation, but to love and good deeds. Sometimes you've got to give a brother or sister a fit to help them do what's right. Maybe this is another way to express what Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.15, to speak the truth in love. See, here's the thing. You can't practice love and good deeds, literally in the text, good works, by yourself. It leads naturally to the admonition to continue to be faithfully, to, to assembling together. Now, we'll talk about that in a second, but, but there's ver- a very real sense here where, where we have every right, for those who have bounded together under the lordship and the exclusive claim of Jesus, th- there's a point where you say to someone, uh, don't you think you should do what Jesus did here? Like, like, it's okay to ask a brother or sister, like, what would Jesus do in this situation? You should be doing that. That's how we encourage one another. We also do that by being together. The NIV uses the phrase giving up in verse 25. You know, that those who are, you know, giving up meeting together. It uses the phrase giving up, though other translations I think get at the meaning better by translating the word forsaking. That's what the King James says. That's what the New American Standard Bible says. The Lexham English Bible uses the word abandoning, which I think is probably the best translation. They're abandoning meeting together. The idea in the word is an intentional choice to cease from a certain activity in which you've been previously engaged in doing for some time. In a military context, that word is used for the act of desertion, which in America, in wartime, is punishable by death. This is a big deal. It's the same word that Jesus uses on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken, abandoned me? Listen, if you believe that Jesus is the only way to be forgiven, you don't give up on people who drift away. I'm already working on the, the, the message I'm going to send to my friend. In the context of Hebrews, we don't know why people might have done this. Maybe they were discouraged from Christian gatherings from the threat of persecution. Uh, maybe by the, the seeming delay of Christ's return. They, were, uh, they didn't understand why is Jesus waiting so long. Maybe they were... They were um, threatened by their continued and, and established connections with the Jewish synagogue, maybe by just apathy. When I read that verse, that even in the first century, even within 30 years of the church's founding, it, you know, people are already skipping church. Like, whoa, that's, that's not a new problem. Whatever the reason, the author of Hebrews sees their discontinuance of common fellowship and in worship as fatal to their perseverance in the faith. In my first ministry in rural southeast Kansas, I, my, I started ministry in a town of 400 people. Like you go to church and, and someone say, hey, do you know so-and-so? Yeah, we've met. Um, you know, it was a little town. Like, you, you know, there, there weren't a whole lot of folks there. Um, and it was just a really slow pace of life. Like I would go to the office and study and people would pop in and, you know, they didn't generally need to make an appointment because like, what's he doing? You know, um, guy, you know, works one day a week. Anyway, uh, so... Um, that was a joke. It, I worked a lot more than that. Um, so one day, one of our deacons popped in with a friend of his. He wanted me to meet his friend, you know, and that was kind of normal in that small, rural, out-of-the-way place. And, and his friend stuck out his hand, and he introduced himself. He said, um, hi, I'm Pester John. I was like, you mean 
Pastor John? No, pester. I just bug people till they accept Jesus. Okay. This, this is totally true. And I was just like, I mean, I have to confess, my first thought was, how's that working out for you there, pal? <laughs> uh, it's, just, it's a personality difference. It's not, maybe that's his way, and maybe it worked for him, and God was using that. Cool. It's not my way. Like, I don't, I'd rather woo somebody into following Jesus, right? Or if I need to, I'd rather persuade them that it's a better deal than anything they've got going, because it is. But he, I just, he, I bug people. And in studying this passage, though, I think there's something we can learn from Pastor John. If part of walking in the way means provoking each other to love and good deeds, maybe we could be a little more like that. Maybe we could be a little bit more like the Mandalorians who use the phrase, this is the way, both as an affirmation of what they believe, but also an admonition to live like that. And in the show, it's a creedal statement, but it also serves as a loving rebuke. It's like, hey, man, I thought we were in this together. You going to do the right thing here? Yeah? This is the way. So, here's the $64,000 question. Does this passage have an admonition and an application for those whose entire spiritual walk is summed up by logging in to church online just in time to hear the sermon, listening to it, and as soon as we start to sing, checking out? Yeah, it does. It does. Now, if you're sick today, if you had a work schedule and you're watching this later, I'm not talking to you. But if your whole spiritual life is this, and that's it, you're not serving, you're not giving, nothing, just this, You feel a little bit provoked right now? That's biblical. But, but, it also applies to those who show up in this room every Sunday without fail and consume religious goods and services, tick the box and walk out the door and don't give and don't serve and don't witness and don't disciple. And if you feel a little bit provoked right now. This is the way. The way that we have been invited to share is the only way to be saved. And it is free for the asking to anyone who wants to receive it, anyone who will surrender their life to Jesus. His body and blood shed on the cross in your place for your sin and rose again on victory on Easter all those years ago. His body sacrificed for you. It is the way into your relationship with God. You can draw near to the God of the universe. The one who spoke the stars into existence wants to have a relationship with you through Christ. But only through Christ. So which one of these three practices do you need to embrace today? Let me be clear, if you're going to walk in the way of Jesus, you've got to practice all three, but where do you need to start? Maybe you need to draw near to Jesus. It's possible there's someone here this morning who's never decided to follow him, to yield to him as Savior and Lord, to be baptized, to receive his spirit. If so, you have an opportunity to respond. In just a second, we're going to sing a song called The Way of Jesus. 
And I would invite you as we sing to come forward and and name Christ as Savior and Lord if you haven't done that, to be baptized, to draw near to him as the only one who can save you. Maybe you've compromised in some way on your faith and you've kind of let your grip on Jesus get a little loose. Could I encourage you to, to, to reach out and grab him again? We got a whole culture right now that's, that's not wanting to hang on. <laughs> and, and can I just say, even, you might not need to do anything publicly, but right there in your pew as we sing, to recommit your life to following Jesus. You might have a public decision of recommitment to make. We'd love to receive you down front. If you have a prayer need or something, we, we'd love to pray with you. Fred's going to be down here. I'll be down front. If you have questions, our next step room is open. One of our elders will be in there to, to talk with you. I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet, and we're going to sing together, and you respond as God leads you today.